invite you at this time to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 7, verses 18 through 33. Luke chapter 7, verses 18 through 33. As you're turning there, I'd like to situate us in terms of where are we at in this Gospel of Luke. This Gospel of Luke can be uh, broken down into three or four sections. It begins with these infancy narratives of both John the Baptist and our Lord Jesus Christ. And then the next major section is Jesus' public ministry, which begins in the region of Galilee. And that's the section we are currently in. But a couple of chapters from now, in chapter 9, verse 50, Luke transitions as Jesus now journeys on to Jerusalem. And then the last section is Jesus' time in Jerusalem, which includes his trial and his arrest, or his arrest, his trial, and his crucifixion. So as we continue to learn about Jesus' public ministry here in the, the region of Galilee, I'd ask you to turn your attention to Luke chapter 7, verses 18 through 33. The disciples of John reported all these things to him. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up. The poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation? What are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another, we played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say, he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, 
a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. Well, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. May he write this word upon our hearts this evening. Well, two weeks ago, we considered together this narrative where Jesus raised from the dead the deceased son of a widow. At the conclusion of that narrative, Luke adds this statement. He says, and a report went out to all of Judea and all the surrounding country. In fact, it even made its way to one of Herod's prison cells, which contained John the Baptist. And John the Baptist, as one author has noted, is experiencing somewhat of a a dark night of the soul. He is in prison and is experiencing doubts. He's asking questions. He hears these reports about what Jesus has been doing. This report which has spread like wildfire throughout the land. Jesus has been casting out unclean demons, healing the sick, raising individuals from the dead, preaching and teaching with authority that the people had not seen in their religious leaders. And John is having doubts. He's questioning, who is this Jesus? Is he a prophet or is he the prophet? And what we see in this narrative is that Jesus, in light of these questions, in light of John's doubts, offers him and offers us instruction and teaching upon these very issues, about who he is and the significance of his coming. So this evening, I'd like us to consider this narrative through the lens of this theme. The life of faith. The life of faith. And what we'll see is that this narrative, this passage, is not only about the life of faith of John the Baptist, but it also is about our own lives of faith. I would imagine we all can relate to the doubts that John is experiencing. Relate to having questions about who Jesus is, the significance of his coming, the implications it has upon us. We all then can relate to the need of receiving and hearing Jesus' instruction and words. So as we consider this topic, this theme of the life of faith, I'd like us to examine two main points this evening. First, we'll examine the enemies of our faith. And then secondarily, we'll consider the refuge for our faith. So first, the enemies of our faith. And then second, the refuge for our faith. So first, the enemies of faith. As I mentioned, John is in prison, and this report about what Jesus has been doing around the countryside has come to his ears. He's, he's, he's learned that Jesus has been casting out demons, healing the sick, the centurion's uh, paralyzed servant, this, this young deceased man who's the son of a widow, has been raised from the dead. He's been preaching. Recall this sermon on the plains that we just finished considering a few weeks ago. John's hearing all about this. 
and he has questions. Is this the one that I've been sent to prepare the way for? Is he the one? Or should we look for another? And so John calls two of his disciples and sends them to go to Jesus and ask him this very question. Are you the one? Or are, you to, are we to look for another? Are you a prophet or are you the prophet? And so we see that the first enemy, the first enemy of John's faith, the first enemy of, of even our faith, is the enemy of wrong expectations. Wrong expectations. Now, why did these, this report about what Jesus has been doing, why did it lead to doubts and questions on John's part? I don't think that's immediately obvious. It seems a little bit like a counterintuitive response. John hears about all these miracles that, that Jesus has been doing, and he starts doubting. We have to consider a little bit about the expectations that John the Baptist had regarding the coming Messiah one, the coming Messiah. Now John, as many commentators have noted, John was expecting the Messiah to come, the, the Messiah who was to come, he was expecting this Messiah to come in wrath and judgment. Let me remind you of what John the Baptist said earlier in Luke, just a few chapters ago, in chapter 3, verse 16 and 17, listen, listen to how John the Baptist describes the coming Messiah. He says, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn and the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. John was expecting Jesus to come with judgment, with wrath, the fury of his fire. John wasn't only expecting this judgment to come upon unbelieving Israel, but also upon the Romans who were controlling, governing the Jewish people. He was expecting a renewal of the kingdom of God, much like the kingdom which existed under David and Solomon, this somewhat consummated theocracy. But instead of this, he's rotting in a Roman prison, Herod's Roman prison. He had wrong expectations. So he hears all these reports, but it's not wrath, it's not judgment, it's not fury. He's confused, he's doubting, he's having questions. And one reason for this confusion may be because, you know, the prophets, when they prophesied about the coming age, they oftentimes spoke of this future age as one event, this one grand thing that's going to happen in the future. Oftentimes, they didn't make these distinctions. And so John, as he's, he likely would have known the prophets well, just thought, oh yeah, the coming Messiah is going to come, and all these blessings, all these things are going to come about at his coming. Even final judgment. He had wrong expectations. 
However, we also see that it wasn't only John who was having confusions and doubts about Jesus. It was also the crowd, the people who were in Jesus' midst. If you skip down to verse 31, we see that Jesus compares this generation to bickering children. Children who cannot get along. Because whenever a game is played, everyone wants to play according to their own rules. Someone plays a flute, and everyone has a different idea of what, of what we should be doing when a flute is played. Someone sings a dirge, and everyone has a different idea for what should be done when a dirge is conducted. Everyone has their own expectations, their own rules, and they will only play the game if it's done according to their way. In a similar way, Jesus is saying everyone has their own expectations for the Messiah. And they're stubborn in those expectations. They're not willing to budge. And their expectations are wrong. They want Jesus to play by their rules. To conform to their expectations. And we also can have wrong expectations of Christ. And oftentimes, these, these wrong expectations can go unnoticed in our life. We may not be fully conscious of our wrong expectations. We may subtly think that you know, Jesus is here to bring us an easy life, a life of earthly prosperity and riches. We may think that Jesus has promised to transform culture and society and, and even the political state. This is what theologians describe as an over-realized eschatology. That is, we expect too much heaven here on earth in this present evil age. Therefore, we need to conform our expectations ruthlessly with Scripture. Scripture guides what our expectations are to be. Now, there are many Christians, I include myself in this category who when, when informed of a, a biblical doctrine, their initial response is, I could never believe in a God like that. I could never believe in a God who would elect some and not others, a God who would send individuals to hell. And the reason is it doesn't conform to our preconceived expectations. And this is why we need to always conform our expectations, our view of Christ, to the Scriptures. And let God's revelation of himself dictate how we think about him. So wrong expectations. Wrong expectations can be an enemy of faith. Can create doubts and questions. But the second enemy of faith that we see here in this passage is the enemy of suffering. Now remember the context of where John the Baptist is at. He's in a Roman prison. Now, Roman prisons were not a popular vacation site in the first century. He likely would have been sleeping on a stone floor, had little food to eat, rodents and rats may have been gnawing on his flesh. This, this would not have been an easy place to be. So suffering, I'm sure, led to some of these doubts and questionings. You know, he's been sent by God to prepare the way for the long-awaited Messiah. 
who he thinks is going to deliver the Jews from the Romans, and he's rotting in a Roman prison. Imagine why he, he starts, he's starting to have doubts, questions. His faith seems to be weakening. Well, I think sufferings and the trials and tribulations that we all endure in this, this, this current age can have a similar effect on us as well. Now, of course, we know that God is sovereign over all things, and his purpose in the midst of sufferings is to refine our faith, to grow us and sanctify us. But we also know that the evil one, the devil, wants to use the sufferings we endure in this age as a way to attack our faith, as a way to skew our view of Christ and the goodness of God. So suffering can, can at times be, be an enemy of faith. As I was preparing this, this sermon and was reflecting upon this point, something a historian said about the pastor-theologian Jacob Arminius came to mind. Now, Jacob Arminius was a Calvinistic Dutch pastor in the 16th and 17th centuries. You probably know him because of the movement which he sparked, Arminianism, which birth that controversy birthed one of our one of our confessions the canons of dort but when you think when you uh, learn about the biography of jacob arminius you learn that as a, a young boy or no as a young man he went to university and at university spanish troops came to the city the village he grew up in and just pillaged the city raped the individuals there killed, tortured everyone, including his family. Great suffering, great tragedy. And so as he would go on later in life to reflect upon big issues relating to God's will, God's sovereignty, even even the problem of evil, he didn't do this detached from the personal experiences he had in life. And so the sufferings of life can at times skew our view of God, skew our view of of his character. And we need to be on guard about that. So suffering can indeed be an enemy of faith. As I mentioned, the devil uses these things. Uses uh, wrong expectations. Expectations we may not even be conscious of. Uses the, the difficulties, sufferings, and trials of this life. Uses these things to attack, undermine our faith. This leads us It's a very important question. Where does our faith find refuge? In the midst of this onslaught, where do we find refuge? This leads us to my second point, the refuge for faith. The refuge for faith. Now in this passage we see that Jesus points, John points, the crowd points us to the word of God as being the refuge for our faith in the midst of the onslaught of all of these enemies. The word of God is the refuge for our faith. If you look what Jesus says in response to this question that the disciples of John bring to him, he says, go and tell John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor 
have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. That is, the one who does not refuse me. Jesus' response is essentially to say, you don't need any further information. You already know what I've been doing. I've been healing, casting out demons, raising individuals from the dead, preaching good news to the poor. This is all that you need. Oh, and blessed is the one who does not refuse me. This statement, however, there's, there's more to this statement that, than what meets the, the, the surface. For those in the, in the original context who would have known their Old Testaments well, they would have known that Jesus isn't just giving a summary of his earthly ministry up until this point. Jesus is stringing together a number of quotations from the prophet Isaiah and saying, Isaiah was talking about me. Isaiah, when he was prophesying about the Messiah to come, said that the Messiah would be doing these things. Cleansing the lepers, giving the blind their sight, making the deaf hear, raising the dead, preaching good news to the poor. And Jesus is saying, I am he. You don't need to look for another. I am he. And John, he, he may have been ignorant of these scriptures in Isaiah. He may have known them, but had been misinterpreting them. We don't know. But regardless, Jesus points John back to the word of God. He points him back to the Old Testament scriptures, which he would have known well. In the midst of, of these doubts, which came from his wrong expectations, from his suffering, he, he points him to the word of God as the means of refuge for his faith. Jesus is telling John to let God's word shape his expectations of him, not his preconceived notions, not the fact that he's in a Roman prison currently, but let God's word shape his expectations of Christ. Well, Jesus not only tells John the Baptist to take refuge in the word of God, he also gives this instruction to the crowds. But when he's speaking to the crowds, he doesn't point to the Old Testament, he, speaks, he, spe- he points to his own words, which also are divine words, as Jesus is the Son of God. So in this narrative, we see that the disciples of John go off to relay this message back to their teacher, and then Jesus turns to address the crowds, crowds that were experiencing similar doubts, similar wrong expectations, who needed their faith strengthened, who needed a refuge for their faith as well. You'll see that Jesus says to them, what did you go out to the wilderness to see? Now this crowd, not only, not only did they not know who Jesus fully was, kind of confused about him, but also about John the Baptist. And so he says, you know, what do you go to the wilderness to see? And John the Baptist, his home was in the wilderness. And he's saying, do you see a, did you go out to see a reed shaken by the wind? That is, did you go out to see a man with no conviction, no backbone, just flimsy? No, we went to see a man with conviction, with, 
with a backbone? Did you go to see someone in, in luxurious clothing? No, they went to see someone in rugged clothing. They went to see a prophet. And then Jesus goes on to quote Malachi 3, chapter one, Malachi 3, verse 1, which is that prophecy about the coming of John, who was to be the last and greatest Old Testament prophet who would prepare the way for this Messiah. And then Jesus tells us something very, very important in verse 28. Quite remarkable what he says. In verse 28, he says this. He says, I tell you, though among those born of women, none is greater than John, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Jesus is saying that John He is the greatest Old Testament prophet. Greater than Elijah, Elisha, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Hosea, Moses, any any of the other prophets. John is the greatest. Yet, even the least of those who belong to the kingdom of God is greater than John. This is remarkable. Now, boys and girls, every story or most every story that you read has chapters, divisions. Helps you break up the story. Well, the Bible, which also is a story, a true story, a historical story, also has divisions, chapters. Major milestones in God's plan of redemption. And Jesus here is pointing to arguably the greatest chapter division. As he has come and has brought the dawn of a new age. A new chapter, a new kingdom, the inauguration of of the kingdom of God. And he's saying that those who belong to this kingdom are greater than even the greatest in the old era, in the Old Testament. It's remarkable, because brothers and sisters, we belong to this kingdom of God. We belong to this new age, this new era that Christ has instituted. So you, according to Jesus, are greater than even that of John the Baptist, the greatest Old Testament prophet. Now, why is this the case? Well, it's the case because as members of the kingdom of God, we are the recipients of innumerable benefits, gifts, blessings. You know, because we are members of the kingdom of God, we have the spirit of God in full measure. We live after Pentecost. So when the sufferings of this present age come and and when the evil one starts to whisper those lies into our ears saying, just curse God and die. There's no purpose to life, to the misery that you're enduring. We know that because we have the Spirit, God's power is made manifest in our weakness, in our suffering the trials of this life, that our sufferings are God's playing field for him to manifest his power and presence in our life. Indeed, that's a great benefit, a great piece of knowledge to have. Because we are members of the kingdom of God, we are justified. We are made right before God, and we have assurance of this. We are being graciously sanctified through the Spirit of God, and we are looking forward to that certain hope of the kingdom, the consummated kingdom. 
Because we are members of the kingdom of God, we have greater revelation than the Old Testament saints could have even dreamed of. Peter says that prophets long to see our day. Imagine how frustrating that would be to live under types and shadows. It's hard enough for us to interpret the Old Testament, and we have the New Testament. We have full revelation, completed revelation from God himself. And because we are members of the kingdom of God, we then are to be a feasting people. Verse 33 and 34, this narrative concludes as Jesus says that John came as an aesthetic, fasting, proclaiming judgment. Jesus comes eating and drinking with the worst of society. We, we considered this a few chapters ago that this indicates to us that we are to be a feasting people. Not only literally, but especially metaphorically. Feasting on these benefits that we have. These blessings we have as members of the kingdom of God. It's because of these benefits that we, Jesus can say that we have it better than those who belong to the old era. And these words of Jesus, we are to take refuge in. These great gospel truths and promises of who we are as citizens of the kingdom. And it's a great refuge, a great defense in the midst of the enemies that seek to assault us in this age. And so let me ask you, are you taking refuge in the word of God? As you undergo the sufferings of this life, whatever they may be, whether it be great, whether it be small, are you turning to the word of God as a place of refuge? 